All right, we are in John chapter 11 tonight. If you want to head there in your Bibles, it's what we'll be walking through. Uh, As you go there, uh, I I think I've shared with you all before, I know I have, that uh, I I spent a year overseas in uh, Cyprus after I graduated from college. Cyprus, this little island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, I was on a small team that lived there for a year, um, going to school there and kind of looking for opportunities, relationships to build through which we could share the gospel. Uh, But while we were over there, we lived in this town called Famagusta. And uh, Famagusta is is over on the east side of the island, right up against the sea there. Uh, There's this section in the town called the Old City. Uh, Sorry, actually, it's called the Walled City. And and it was the oldest part of the city. And and it was called the Walled City because it was surrounded on all sides by these uh, 15th century Venetian walls, these beautiful walls that had been built up, even though in parts they were kind of run down. Uh, But it was really cool. You would walk through this town, and it was just all, a lot of it, much older. And there would be ruins of old churches or old buildings, just kind of as you'd be walking down the road. It was always really cool to go there. It also had in the walled city uh, one of our favorite restaurants, which was D&B Pizza. And uh, we liked D&B Pizza because, uh, first of all, it was hard to find good pizza in Cyprus. Uh, the side of the island that we were on was Muslim, and so they don't do pork. But most of, I don't know if you've ever noticed, most of the best toppings that go on pizza come from pork. And so it was hard to find a good pizza. Uh, DMB, they didn't have pork toppings, but at least they, their pizza was pretty good. It was, it was probably the best pizza in town. And so we liked to go there for the pizza. But, but aside from that, we also liked to go there for the view. Because uh, DMB had this patio seating outside their restaurant. And whenever you would go and sit there, you sat in this kind of old town square. And just across from you, just across the square from where you were sitting, was this. This beautiful old cathedral is called the the Cathedral of St. Nicholas. It was built, uh, started being built in the 1300s. So very old, huge, beautiful, ornate. Uh, It was converted into a mosque by the Ottomans when they came and conquered Cyprus in 1500s. And it's been a mosque ever since. But we love to sit there and just look at this thing as we would sit there and and eat our food together. But I had probably one of my most awkward meals ever sitting at that restaurant, DMB Pizza, in the town square of the walled city in Famagusta. We were there one day eating lunch, dinner, I don't remember. I think it was probably lunch. And all of a sudden I hear behind me, I'm facing away from the cathedral at this moment, and I hear behind me just this wailing sound. Uh, It sounds like someone's in pain, like someone is almost being physically attacked. This just screaming sound come from behind me. And I turn around and, and we look behind us to see this funeral procession that is actually taking place going towards the what well, was a cathedral, but it's a mosque now. This Muslim funeral procession that's taking place. And, and a number of people are sad and crying in the middle of it. But, but in the center of it, there's this woman. And I don't know if she was the widow to the deceased person or the mother of the deceased person. But she is um, literally just howling in sorrow over this person who's just passed away. And it, was, it was this really odd moment. You, you kind of forget that this 
old cathedral is not just a tourist destination, but it's an actual like place of worship for a lot of people. It's where they go to worship. It's where they go for their funerals and things like this. And so there's this funeral. And I remember just feeling so stuck because we were not far from this. I want to say 30 feet or something. And so it's, it's obviously, it feels rude to just stop what you're doing and sit and stare at this lady as she's crying out. And yet at the same time, it, we're so close to it. It feels, feels like I'm almost a part of it. So it feels odd to just sit there and continue eating my pizza in the middle of this funeral that's taking place. Uh, I just felt stuck. Uh, but that moment always, it, it, it hit me and it kind of stuck with me because of two things. One was just the, the outpouring of emotion from this woman in the middle of it. We don't express emotion like that woman did there, not in the West very often. That's much more of like an Eastern way of expressing emotion. Uh, but, but there she was just kind of crying out. But I also remember just distinctly this sense of a lack of hope in that funeral, just watching that and feeling sad for the woman and the people who were involved. John 11, as I said, is where we are. Uh, many people divide the book of John into these two halves. Uh, the first half they call the book of signs. That's chapters 1 through 11. And, and through the book of signs, John tells the story centered around these seven different miracles. All of them he calls signs because they're pointing to different aspects of who Jesus is. So these seven signs, and then the second half of the book is called the book of glory. Uh, but but John 11, what we're reading today, is the last of the seven signs. It is the, the largest and kind of the culmination of all of Jesus' signs. Uh, just a little bit of kind of summary of the first 16 verses for you and a little bit of background, and then we'll pick it up at verse 17. But, but what takes place in the story just before this, at the end of John 10, Jesus was in Jerusalem and he was speaking, and he gets into this kind of discussion slash argument with this crowd there in Jerusalem, and they try to kill Kill him for blaspheming. And when he says things like, I and the Father are one, when they hear that, that's blasphemy. And so they, they try to get together to grab a hold of him and execute him there. He, he's able to elude their grasp. And it says that he then left that region, that region of Judea where Jerusalem was, and he traveled over to the other side of the Jordan River, which is about 20 miles east of Jerusalem. So he travels over to the other side of Jordan, and while he's there, he receives this word from his dear friends, Mary and Martha. We talked about them several weeks ago in Luke chapter 10. Rachel actually taught us about them. But he receives word from them, these very good friends, that their brother Lazarus, who's also a close friend of Jesus, that he's dying, that he's very sick, and that he's dying. And when Jesus receives those words, we get this really strange response. This is how it goes in verses 5 through 7. They come and they tell him that Lazarus is sick and dying. And it says in verse 5 of chapter 11, Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, Let's go to Judea again. Now, that's not what it's supposed to say, right? It, it's supposed to say Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus very much. And so when he got word that Lazarus was sick, he went right away. 
He dropped everything he was doing and he traveled over to Bethany where they lived to help. But that's not what it says. It says, so he waited a couple days and then he said, let's go. The reason we'll later see is that something bigger is going on here. Jesus knows what he's about to do, and so he doesn't mind and even, I think, is kind of willing and wanting to wait a little bit. And then when he tells his disciples it's time to go, they don't like it. Uh, they say, hey, Jesus, do you not remember? They were, they were trying to kill you over there just a short time ago in Judea. But Jesus' response is, hey, our friend Lazarus, he says, has fallen asleep. And I'm on my way to go wake him up. So that's what they do. They pick up and they travel back to this region of Judea, right there near Jerusalem to the town of Bethany. That's where the story picks up in verse 17. Here's what it says, verses 17 through 19. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. So it starts by saying that Lazarus has been dead for four days. That's significant because the Jewish belief around this period of time was, uh, many of them at least believed that when someone died, that the spirit of that person hovered over and stayed near the body for three days after they died, kind of looking for or waiting for uh, the possibility of re-entering that body again. But after four days, after three days, once decomposition begins to kind of set in, the spirit would leave. And so this idea that Lazarus has been dead four days, John is kind of hinting, hey, he's beyond hope now. There's no kind of hope of resuscitation of the spirit coming back. He's, he's too far gone at this point. Verse 20 says this, as soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Okay, so pause. Martha knew, mostly at least, what Jesus was capable of. She believed that he was powerful, that God would do what he wanted. And that's why she says, if only you had been here, Jesus. If only you had been here, I know you could have healed him. You could have saved him. And, and Jesus says to her in this moment, listen, your, your brother will rise again. Her response is, I, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection. Now, the Jewish people believed in this day called the resurrection. That's what she's referring to. It was this day at the end of time when God would make everything right and the righteous, those who had been faithful to God, would be raised up to new life with God. And, and this is what they believe, and this is actually very similar to what we believe as Christians. But Jesus isn't talking about that. And, and, and Martha is a little bit confused, but he's talking about something different. This is what he says in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. So Jesus says to her, listen, I, 
I know you believe in the resurrection. I know you're looking forward to that day and you have hope and faith in that. I want you to know that right here standing in front of you, this is the resurrection. He doesn't say, I give resurrection and life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am life personified. I am, I am life where life is found. And, and so this is kind of an interesting idea. Real quick, kind of in your own mind, what is your definition of eternal life? When you think of eternal life, what do you think of? Uh, for most of you, you may be thinking what I generally think of or thought of, and that is uh, living forever. Eternal life means I get to live forever after I die, like in heaven with God. Jesus' definition is similar to that, but it's bigger than that. It's deeper. This is how Jesus describes eternal life in John 17, 3, as he's praying and talking to his father. He says, this is eternal life, that they, his disciples, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Jesus says, this is what eternal life is. It's knowing God and knowing me, his son. Jesus is the giver and sustainer of life, which means that death does not have hold on anyone who is in relationship with him because he is life. And knowing him is having eternal life. It also means that this kind of life, uh, the life as it was meant to be, life in the fullest sense is something that we don't wait for until after we die, that we can actually experience some of that now because we can know Jesus now. So we can already begin to experience that. Now, Martha takes Jesus at his word when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? She takes him at his word, but we'll see later that she does not fully understand the, the fullest extent of that truth. Look at verse 28. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And as soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do you notice she starts in the exact same way that her sister Martha started? If you had been here, Jesus, you know that they had to have said that to each other several times over the last four days. If only Jesus had been here. If only he had been here. And so that's what she says, just like Martha. Jesus, if you had been here, then I know my brother would not have died. But it's interesting. She says virtually the exact same thing that Martha did. And yet Jesus' response to Mary is different. It's actually kind of unexpected, really. Verse 33 when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? 
Now, there are two Greek words in this text. You remember the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and we've translated it into English from there. There are two Greek words here that are worth kind of making sure we got a grasp on. The, the first one is the word for Mary's weeping when it says that she was crying in front of, uh, of him and, and, and weeping in front of him. The word is klio, and it describes not a quiet sobbing at his feet, but a loud wailing, like, like the woman near the pizza shop at that cathedral uh, several years ago, this just wailing and, and uh, howling in deep sorrow. The second word is the word that we see where it says that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit. The word is imbrimaomai. Uh, but it doesn't mean deeply moved. That's how almost every translation translates it. It's, it's this term, they, they translate it as this term of kind of like inner grief, but it is not a word for sadness. Basically, every Greek scholar will tell you this is a word for anger and agitation. It, it means like to bellow with anger. It, it was a word that would be used to describe uh, like a war horse, the snorting of a war horse as it's going into battle. That kind of huffing, uh, that's what's going on here. And, and most translations are kind of, I don't know, they seem almost afraid to say that. Jesus is angry in this moment. So the question is, what is Jesus angry at? Why is he getting angry? Why is he deeply agitated uh, in this moment? I believe what he's angry at as he looks around is the broken state of the world. That Jesus looks around at these people crying over the loss of a loved one, someone gone too soon, and he goes, it's not supposed to be like this. That's not how this was designed to be, and he's angry. The Bible teaches that uh, this kind of brokenness, as he looks around and sees them, that this kind of brokenness is a result of sin in the world. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit, but Jesus is angry at that, what sin has brought into the world. Now, still, even when we recognize that, it still seems a bit odd that Jesus is angry since he knows what he's about to do. And not only that, but he breaks down and he begins weeping here. And yet he knows what he's about to do. So why is he weeping? Verse 38 says, Then Jesus deeply moved again. There's that word, imbrimaomai again. Deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he has been there or he has been dead four days. Then Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So he comes to the tomb, he has them open, and here's where we see that Martha doesn't fully understand uh, the implications of her confession. She told Jesus, yes, I believe you're the resurrection of the life. I believe you. But when Jesus says, move the stone, she goes, that's, that's a bad idea, Jesus. Uh, he's been dead four days. There's an odor. It smells in there. Uh, but this is what Jesus calls her to do, calls them to do. And then he wraps up with this. So they removed the stone in verse 41. So they removed the stone. And then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out 
bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth, Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Now try, if you can, to place yourself in the middle of this scene. Try to place yourself in the middle of the crowd when you see Jesus there with Mary and this group, and he first just like bellows out in anger, and then he asks to see the tomb, and, and then he just breaks down and begins weeping. And the crowd starts to lead him here, and, and you probably assume Jesus is going there to mourn, to pay his respects. That's what everybody's doing. But then when he gets there, he asks them to take the stone away. And you hear amongst the crowd, people begin to gasp and murmur, you don't do this. He's, he's crazy. You don't disturb the body. Show some respect here to this man who just passed away. But they move the stone away, and, and he begins to pray this prayer out loud. And it's an interesting prayer. The prayer basically says that God has already heard him, that he and his father have already talked about this before they got there. But he's praying this for your sake, for the crowd's sake, for everyone to hear and, and know that he and the father are on the same page, that he and God have worked this out together, and God is going to hear and answer him. And then he shouts out loud at the dead man. And everyone just sits there in silence for a moment, waiting. And then you see at the entrance to the tomb, this bound man make his way up to the front. And there's this mix of shock and fear and amazement, and let's be honest, a little bit of creepiness and, and joy as this man comes out of the tomb. And, and everyone looks around and they cannot believe what they're seeing. And the next two verses of John show that there are two very interesting reactions to what just happened in this moment. Verses 45 and 46 says this, Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And both of these reactions are interesting, and they will set in motion events that will change the course of human history, but particularly that second reaction. We'll talk more about that one in just a bit. First, we're going to take a break for just a few minutes. So I want you to walk with me back to that very odd moment where Jesus, in the middle of this funeral, just breaks down even though he knows he's about to raise Lazarus uh, back from the dead. Think about that for just a second, just how strange that is. Uh, Tim Keller, when he talks about this story, puts it this way. If you were making up a story about a divine figure who had come to earth in disguise as a human being, and in the story he arrives at the funeral of a very close friend, knowing that he has the power to raise that friend from the dead, what would be this person's inner emotional state at that moment? Like if you're writing the story, if it's you who's, who's putting this together and you've got this divine like superhero figure coming there and he knows he's going to raise this person from the dead, what would his emotional state be in your story? Like would he be uh, smiling to himself? Would he be uh, excited, playful, maybe rubbing his hands in anticipation? Just wait, guys. I know. I know it looks bad now, but just hold on because I'm about to blow your minds. 
Or, or would he maybe just continue to speak in this kind of elevated spiritual tone the whole time? I am the resurrection and the life. Nobody worry. All right. Dry your tears. Dry your tears. OK. What would he be doing in that moment? What would he be thinking? Here's Keller's point. There's no way that you would write him like this. You would never come up with this idea where he goes, knows he's going to raise uh, Lazarus from the dead, and in the middle of it gets pulled into Mary and Martha's agony and begins weeping at this funeral. This is actually, by the way, an argument for the legitimacy of the scriptures. We'll talk more about this when we come to the resurrection in a few weeks. But one of the things that proves the Bible to be true, or at least gives strong evidence of it, is that often the writing of the Bible is counterintuitive and would even appear to be counterproductive to what the writers are trying to do. Like if you're making up a story about Jesus and you're trying to convince a bunch of people to buy your new religion in which Jesus is the son of God and this really powerful people. There's there's no way that you would write a story in which he comes and looks weak in the middle of a funeral. You would write this story to make him look like Superman. You would write this story to make him come and show just how in control he is of all things. The fact that John would actually write Jesus as weeping in the middle of a funeral means it probably happened. It means that that's exactly what took place. But again, the question is why? Why does Jesus weep in the middle of this? Why does he bellow in anger? Here's the reason, I believe, because Jesus is absolutely God. And his response to Martha is true. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the one who holds the power over death. He is 100% God, but he's more than that. He's also, and this is a key aspect of the Christian faith, Jesus is also 100% man. 100% human. He's not, and we need to be clear on this, he is not God in a human costume. When Jesus comes to the earth, it's not God kind of taking on the shell of a human body and then walking that body around everywhere pretending to be human. He's not even, uh, he's not a really great spiritual man who has some divine qualities, and he's not half God, half man. The church has been clear on this for thousands of years. Jesus was 100% God, 100% deity, and 100% human at the exact same time. And here's the thing, whether you realize it or not, that is exactly what you needed him to be. You needed both of those things in him more than you may ever know. Let's start with the easy one. We needed Jesus to be God. Because if Jesus wasn't God, then he cannot rescue us. Like Jesus can show up at all the funerals in the world that he wants and he can mourn over the broken state of the world as he looks around and cry out that this isn't right, that it needs to be different than that. But if he's not God, he does not have the ability to do anything about it. He can't fix the brokenness because the brokenness is not just out there in the world. The actual, the the brokenness is in here. The brokenness is in me. And so it's not just something that some human being can come and clean up with some tidy life principles. 
The truth is this, that God has placed a specific design in me as a human being, that I am designed to live like him, to look like him. I'm designed to be loving as he is. I'm designed to not turn inward on myself, but to be outward focused, meeting and looking for the needs of other people. I'm designed to be gentle and patient. And the truth is I'm not those things a lot of times. Sometimes I am. But a lot of times I'm not. And what we call that is sin. Whenever I rebel against God's design for me, whenever I rebel against the way I was meant to live, whenever I rebel against God, we call that sin. And a great human teacher, no matter how wise he is, he can come and give me some great wisdom. He can come and give me some great life principles, but he cannot fix or change my heart within me. He can maybe help me live a slightly better life. But he can't rescue me from my sin, and he certainly can't rescue me from death. I need God to do that. I need the one who is the resurrection and the life, and Jesus is that. But he's also something else, and we needed this just as much. He's human. And I needed him to be human as well. I needed him to be absolutely 100% human. Here's kind of an interesting idea. There is no other religious leader of any of the major world religions. No other religious leader has ever showed up and claimed to be God. They all show up and say, I'll point you to God. I'll tell you how to get to God. I'm a prophet. But no one says they're God. There have been like some small like cults where someone has said that they were God. But none of those ever lasted. Of all the lasting religions, there's only one in which a man showed up and said he was God. This is also true, though, that in all the major world religions, there's never a God who claims to be absolutely human either. But Jesus does both of those things comes and claims to be God and claims to be human at the exact same time. And this is fascinating to me. You won't find it in any other religion. What other God would show up at a funeral and weep with us? Every other God from every other religion stands above all our problems and pain. Oh, they may be compassionate. Oh, they may, they may care that you're hurting. They may care that you're going through pain, but that pain never touches them. They never have to experience it. They're bigger than that. They're greater than that. They're more powerful than that. And they never have to be affected by any of those things. But this book says that God came and placed himself right in the middle of our suffering and experienced it with us lived it, experienced suffering to a degree that many of us might not ever experience. This book says that the God that it calls us to worship in Jesus the Son knows and can relate to your sufferings, your hardship, your struggles, and your pain. Jesus is not indifferent to those things. He knows what it's like. He's been there. He's felt that. And so when you hurt, he can identify with that because he allowed himself to. But there's another thing. Because Jesus has identified with our weakness, that means he's also come and experienced our temptation. He knows what it's like to feel the difficulty of doing the right thing, 
to feel the difficulty of resisting temptation. It is easy to think of God as a divine rule giver who lays down the law with no regard for how hard that is for us sometimes. And let's be honest, it is hard to do the right thing. It is hard to be selfless. It is hard sometimes to be loving. But God is not that kind of God who has no regard for this. First of all, he's not someone who just sends out and just arbitrarily puts out laws and rules for us to try to obey. No, no, no. All of God's commands actually flow from his character. The reason he says be loving is because that's what he is. The the reason he says be truthful is because that's what he is. And so since we're made in his design, he's not just putting down rules to try to keep you busy. He's actually telling you how life will go best for you how you were designed to live, but it's also important to catch this, that he totally knows how it is to face temptation because through Jesus, he came and he felt it. This is what Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter four, verses 14 through 15. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So in the Jewish understanding, the high priest was like the one person who operated as the the go-between or the mediator between God and human beings. He's the one who came to God on behalf of human beings and kind of vice versa and those things. And and the writer of Hebrews is saying the perfect high priest, the ultimate high priest that we all needed was Jesus himself. The perfect go-between between God and man. And he says you should cling to him, hold to him because our high priest, even though he was high enough to go into the heavens and be with his father, he's also been low enough to come and experience temptation and struggle just as we have. Uh, He says this, that our high priest was tempted in all the ways that we are. Did you know that? Jesus has been tempted in every single way when he was here on the earth. I I don't think that means every specific particular sin, but I think probably that means every type of sin. Sins towards selfishness. Sins towards sexual temptation. Sins of anger. He was tempted towards those things. And yet the the writer of Hebrews says, yet he never gave in. But he experienced what it was like to face those things. And because of this, Jesus does not roll his eyes when you come to him and tell him I'm struggling. It feels so hard. I know what I'm supposed to do, but it feels so hard. He does not roll his eyes. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, pound his fist and say, just get your crap together for once. How many times do I have to tell you? How many times are you going to keep doing this? No. The writer of Hebrews says he can sympathize with you. He knows and he is quick to come and help you so you can go to him in those moments. In fact, that's the very next verse, Hebrews 4, 16. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Jesus will help you when you need him to because he's been there. But there is one last way and that it really matters that Jesus was human. That's this. Because Jesus was human, he was able to do what we needed most. He was able to die. He was able to die for us. Because God is a just judge and not a corrupt judge, 
His character and his nature demands that he cannot overlook sin. You can't bribe God to turn a blind eye to certain things that you've done. He never plays favorites, only punishing some sins and letting others slide. He never does any of those things. He always does the exact right thing. He's true to his nature. He's always just. He's always right. He always punishes sin. But the problem, of course, is, means that that means he punishes me because I am sinful. And death and separation from God is the penalty for my sin. When I have rebelled against him, when I have turned against him and said, I don't want to do what you want me to do. I want to do what I want to do. The penalty is to get what I want, to be separated from God, both in this life and for eternity. And the only way to pay for that penalty is that I have to die or someone else can die for me. And this is really important. Someone has to die for me, not something. Because the blood of bulls and of goats and of sheep cannot pay for the sins of human beings. You need the blood of human beings to pay for the sins of human beings. You can't have an angel come and be sacrificed for human beings. You cannot have a God or even a half God, half man come and die in the place of human beings. You need someone who is 100% human to come and die for your sin. And this is where Jesus comes in. And this is where that line in verse 46 of John 11 becomes so important. John 11 verse 46, after Jesus heals him, says this, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And when those people go to the Pharisees and they tell Jesus what, or tell them what Jesus has done, the Jewish ruling council, that is the Sanhedrin, they decide and they come to their decision, Jesus has to be killed. We've got to do away with him. This is getting out of control. If this man is raising people from the dead, there will be no stopping him unless we put an end to him ourselves. And the thing is, they're totally going to be able to do that. Because Jesus, the immortal God, made himself mortal. And the indestructible king made himself killable. And the one who is life became subject to death. For us, for you, so that our sins could be taken from us and the punishment for sins could be taken to back to Hebrews again says this. This is Hebrews. I think I have four on the screen. It's actually Hebrews two says now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death. That is the devil and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way. That is, he had to be just like us in every way, human in every possible way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God, to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. What the writer of Hebrews is getting at in this moment is that Jesus was exactly what we needed. That Jesus, as God, is high enough, or actually as God, he became low enough to care about your problems, became low enough to experience your pain, became humble enough to go through your hardship and your difficulty, but because he is God, he is also high enough to do something about it. He's also 
big enough and strong enough to, to fix the problem. He is also the one who is the resurrection and the life. And this is eternal life, to know this Jesus, the God-man, 100% divine, 100% God, 100% human, the God-man who can sympathize with your weakness and is strong enough to carry you through it. That's what we want for you, to know him. If you do, we want you to know him more. We want you to know you can come to him when you are facing temptation. You can come to him when you're struggling and he cares for you. He will help you through those things. And if you don't, we want you to know him even more. We want you to know who he is and to be able to place faith in him. We would love to talk with you about that. Anyone in this room would love to share a little bit more about that with you. Let me pray and we'll be done. Dear God, I thank you for Jesus, your son. I needed a human being who could come and identify with me, but not just a human being. I needed you. I needed, I needed God himself to come and save me. And we all did. And so we are thankful for that. And I pray that you would um, use these words, these ideas to give us a greater confidence in approaching you as a God who has sympathy and compassion for us. Pray, Lord, that you would awaken faith in us tonight. Give us a greater trust in Jesus and who he is. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.